Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1 as we continue our series in the Gospel according to John. We're in chapter 1, and this evening the verses that we will be considering are verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw John coming toward him. Sorry, the next day he saw Jesus. That is, John is the he there. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If I were to announce to you this evening that I am now going to give personal testimony about how I at one time was walking on the moon, not only would you probably go home because you were realizing that that's not really what a sermon is supposed to be all about, but you would probably get up and go home because you would have good reasons for not believing me. Uh, For one thing, to give credible testimony, I would need to be an eyewitness And uh, that would mean um, that I actually went to the moon, but there's a problem with that. People walked on the moon between 1968 and 1972, and in those years I was either not born or I was a toddler. And secondly, only astronauts are sent to the moon, and I have never been trained to meet those qualifications. And third, there would be reasons to suspect I might not be telling the truth that have to do with making a name for myself. For it is a common problem of human nature to be willing to make a false claim as long as it advances one's reputation. And uh, the situation would be entirely different if I told you I was going to testify to the fact that I tried to become an astronaut and failed. And that would be believable because no one goes out of their way to testify to something that makes them look bad. But the point is that we have ways of establishing the credibility of testimony that we hear. There are rules, written and unwritten, that help us sort out what is credible. Well, John has been introduced in the prologue to John's gospel, that is, John the Baptist has been introduced as a man sent from God to bear witness about the light. And what gives credibility to his role as the forerunner of Christ is that he never called people to believe in himself. Rather, his goal was always that people through his testimony would believe in Jesus Christ, who is the true light. When a person like John the Baptist has the opportunity to toot his own horn and the opportunity then to draw attention to himself and yet instead points the attention of people elsewhere, we are inclined to believe that he is telling the truth. More than that, both in uh, verses 15 and in verse 30, John is recorded as testifying to Jesus as superior by pointing out, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Last time we considered in detail the testimony of John the Baptist as he gave testimony to this delegation from the Sanhedrin. If you can recall, he was asked if he was the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, 
And in every case, John answered no. He had the opportunity to assert his importance. He had the opportunity to claim a place of prominence. But instead, he very clearly accepted his subservient role as the forerunner of the Christ. He explained that he only baptized with water. But one was coming who was so far above him in rank and in excellence that he was not worthy of untying the strap of his sandal. Well, in the verses before us this evening, John the Baptist gives further testimony of how he came to know that Jesus is the Christ. He gives credible testimony to the identity of Jesus so that people will look to him as the Christ. John the Apostle records the testimony of John the Baptist because the Apostle's goal is that people will know who Jesus is. His goal is that they will put trust in him as the divine source of light and life that we as sinners need. And so I've taken my theme for this evening's message from the words of John's announcement as Jesus approached him when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And so the theme is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And I've developed this theme under the three points of first, John's testimony, second, the proof, and third, the significance. So John's testimony, the proof, and the significance. So we begin with John's testimony, and to give a bit of historical background to John's testimony concerning Jesus, um, John and Jesus have already known each other for some time. Uh, verse 29 introduces what is happening in the verses we are considering this evening is happening on the day after John has just testified to this delegation from the Sanhedrin. What we are not told is that John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus. So that event is in the background. All of the synoptic gospels record the event of John baptizing Jesus, the actual baptism. John doesn't do that. But I'd like to, to draw your attention to what the other gospel writers uh, write concerning um, Jesus' baptism. So I direct your attention first to Matthew chapter 3. And I'd like to read verses 13 through 17. So Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So that's Matthew's account. If we turn to Mark chapter 1, we have Mark's account. Uh, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes 
He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then we have Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So moving now back to John chapter 1 and to the verses before us this evening, the Apostle John apparently assumes that we are familiar with this event as the other gospel writers have recorded it. He doesn't record the actual details for us of Jesus' baptism. But John is more interested in how at Jesus' baptism, John came to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and testified to that fact. The Apostle John wants from the very beginning of his gospel for his readers to know who Jesus is and to know who he is on the basis of a credible witness. It's significant to note that twice in the verses before us this evening, John the Baptist actually is recorded as saying, I myself did not know him. Notice the very same words are found in verse 31 as well as in verse 33. He says, I myself did not know him. And these words should not be taken to mean that John uh, knew absolutely nothing about Jesus, as though they had had no contact and Jesus had no knowledge even, um, and, and John had no knowledge even of Jesus' existence. That's not the idea. The idea, rather, is that John did not always know that Jesus was the anointed one. He did not always know that he was the chosen one of God, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. He didn't always recognize his identity as the word who was with God and was God in the creation of the world, that one who became flesh and dwelt among us to bring light and life. And to admit to not always knowing Jesus' identity as the Messiah actually makes John's testimony more credible. It points to an honest vulnerability. It shows that he is not so foolish as to believe something this significant without careful analysis. If he, had, if he had said, I always knew Jesus was the Messiah, we would have a reason to wonder, well, how did he know that? And a reason then to doubt his testimony as a whole. And especially is this the case when Jesus, to all outward appearance, and speaking now just of his outward appearance, he was a man and a humble, lowly one at that. But John had come to know who he truly was. And this is evident by what he announced one day as Jesus was coming toward him. John's testimony is found in that declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's break down that statement into its two main parts and consider these parts individually. First, John's testimony is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And some have, some have suggested that the meaning is as simple as Jesus is as meek and as mild as a lamb. But there's much more than that going on because what helps define what is meant is that John says this lamb takes away the sin of the world. 
And so this compels us to consider the various times in the Bible when lambs have been associated with salvation from sin. So we recall the incident in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham's faith was being tested by whether or not he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when Isaac asked, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so we understand that in Jesus, the true lamb has been provided. He is God's provision for sin. He's also the true lamb to which every morning and evening sacrifice at the tabernacle and temple pointed. It's interesting to note that a study of when these sacrifices were offered reveals a correspondence to the time Jesus was on the cross. The morning sacrifice was offered at 9 a.m. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus was lifted up on the cross at the third hour, the third hour after 6 a.m., so 9 a.m., the times match. The time of Jesus' death was the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., and 3 p.m. was the time of the evening sacrifice. Each day, morning and evening, lambs were sacrificed. Those daily sacrifices pointed to Jesus and to his death on the cross. Jesus is the lamb of which Isaiah spoke in prophecy. We read earlier from Isaiah 53. Isaiah spoke of one to come who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jesus is the true lamb, the antitype of the Passover lamb of Egypt. The Passover lamb was that lamb that each household killed so that its blood could be painted on the doorposts and lintel of each Hebrew home. It was then to be eaten in haste, for God was delivering them from Egypt, and they were to be ready to travel. And so to sacrifice those lambs so that they could then mark their houses with blood and then to eat the lamb in haste, This was all part of how they were to act in faith. Faith in the grace of God who had promised to spare all of those who obeyed from the plague of the death of the firstborn. The name Passover came from the fact that the angel of death passed over and did not bring the plague of death on the houses that had the sign of the lamb's blood. That blood, that ceremony was meant to be a picture of Jesus' blood acting as a propitiation to divert the just wrath of God from us. It's a fitting picture of Jesus' blood serving as an atoning sacrifice that covers our sins so that we are spared from God's judgment. That's the the first part then of John's testimony is that Old Testament references to salvation through lambs pointed were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And second, John the Baptist announces Jesus to be the one who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this naturally flows out out of an understanding of how Scripture uses lambs as part of the sacrificial system, all designed, as I just uh, went through it and pointed out, all designed to point to Christ as Savior. And yet there is significance that I want to bring to your attention in the wording that John uses here. There's, There's the wording that he uses is worthy of meditation, So there's, first of all, consideration of the Greek word that is translated 
in the ESV as takes away. Jesus as the lamb takes away sin. The Greek word there basically means to raise or to lift up. And it sounds odd if we were to translate it that way in verse 29. We would wonder, Jesus raising up sin? Raising up the sins of the world? But then we come to understand that the word means to lift or to raise up something in order to take it to yourself and to carry it. Which then gives us an understanding of why the word can mean to bear in the sense of carrying the weight of something or even the enduring of an ordeal or difficulty. And so, for example, we might say that the rafters of a house need to be strong in order to bear the weight of the roof. Or we might speak of a person bearing the pain of surgery patiently. But then there's also the natural connection of how some things are lifted up, they are, they are carried, they are born in order to carry them away. And so the word has come to mean to take away or to remove. And uh, this is the sense that our translators have opted for in saying Jesus the Lamb takes away sin. Um, what is particularly interesting is how there is a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that has essentially this very same meaning of lifting up something in order to carry or to bear it away. And I want to have us look at a few Old Testament texts as examples. So I would direct your attention to Exodus chapter 28, verse 38. Exodus 28, verse 38. where we read this. Um, I'll go back to verse 36 to bring in the context here. It says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And in that verse, what is being described is part of what the Old Testament priest is to wear as part of his official uniform. On his head is to be this turban, and on that turban is to be this gold plate, which enables the priest to notice the language of Scripture to bear the guilt or the iniquity that accompanied the sacrifices of the people. And the idea is that the sacrifices brought by the people were tainted with the guilt of sin. And the Hebrew word, therefore, guilt is the word for iniquity. And the basic idea of iniquity is wrongdoing that makes the sinner guilty, that makes the sinner worthy of judgment. The people of God were to bring sacrifices as a way of atoning for the guilt of their sin. And the sacrifices brought in faith would bear the sins of the people. Symbolically, the sins of the people clung to those sacrifices, for as those sacrifices were brought, the sins of the people were, in God's eyes, through faith, transferred to those sacrifices. There's also the sense in which the sacrifices had sin clinging to them because of the imperfection of the people who brought them. And that especially seems to be the sense in which this priest, through this gold plate on his head, would bear the guilt of the people. The purpose was so that their sacrifices would be accepted. And in a way typical of the real high priest who is Jesus Christ, the Old Testament priests 
would intercede on behalf of God's people so that their guilt would be borne and so, in that sense, taken away. Another example of how this word is used in Scripture, uh, the same word shows up in the last verse of Isaiah 53, where it says that the lamb that was led to the slaughter bore the sin of many. Bore the sin of many. Uh, It's the same word used in Psalm 32, verse 5, in the second part of that verse, where the psalmist writes these words. He He says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And you might wonder, well, where in that verse is this word that we've been talking about as, as meaning to bear? Um, actually, the very same Hebrew word is found in there in Psalm 32, verse 5. But this time it's translated as forgave. God forgave the iniquity of my sin. So I suppose it could be translated, God bore the iniquity of of my sin, but the idea is not simply that God took our sin upon Himself, which we would we could argue that happened when Jesus took upon uh, took our sins upon Himself legally, bearing them for us in our place. Um, Jesus' bearing of our sins would be understood by us as the fulfillment and as the basis for what's being described here. But we would still recognize that the idea in Psalm thirty-two five is that God bears our sins in order to take them away. And if God takes away our sins, really, he has forgiven our sins. And so the translation that we have, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now you have a better understanding of what is really going on with that forgiveness because of your understanding of the Hebrew word. There is forgiveness based in God taking up and bearing our sins in order to then take them away from us, in order to forgive us. And it's significant that now in the New Testament, the Greek uh, has a word that has the same nuances. And, And John the Baptist uses this word in reference to Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who bears the sins of the world. He takes our sins to himself in the sense of taking responsibility for them. The guilt of our sin is imputed to him, so that his record before the justice of God shows him to be guilty. Thankfully, he bears our sins in order to then take them away from us so that we do not have to bear responsibility for them before our just and holy, before our just and holy God. And in taking them away from us, we are forgiven. God does not hold those sins against us. We are set free from the guilt and punishment of our sin. So there's a lot of nuances there in that, that wording that, that, uh, that um, Jesus as the Lamb of God takes away, takes away the sin of the world. And notice as well that wording that, that indicates he takes away every one of the sins of his people. Notice the wording is the sin in the singular rather than the sins. He takes away the sin of the world. And the word chosen is a collective word that apparently views the individual sins that Jesus took as just one large mass. I think we could safely argue there's nothing wrong in saying that Jesus takes away sins in the plural. But the use of the singular brings out that there is nothing of sin left 
after his saving work. He doesn't take, all, take away only certain sins while leaving some behind for us to deal with. He doesn't only take away certain consequences of sin while leaving others. The use of the singular here serves to highlight that Jesus has taken away everything related to sin for all who trust in him. Or as one commentator put it, the entire plague and burden of sin. The entire thing is taken away by Jesus Christ. And then finally, we note that Jesus' death is not just for the Jews or even for just a few races of people, but Jesus' death takes away the sin of the world. The prologue has already made clear that Jesus is not light and life for everyone in the world without exception. It's not talking about that. Not everyone receives him in faith. John has already made clear. Not everyone is a child of God, but only those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. This has been made clear. And so the world that John must mean, uh, so that by by this word world, John must mean all human beings without distinction. Not all human beings without exception, but all human beings without distinction. In other words, Jesus died for the sin of his people as they come from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation. He is not a savior of only Jews, but of the whole world. Jew and Gentile. This is John's testimony. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system and takes away sin. And notice he doesn't simply make it possible for sin to be taken away, but he bears our sin so as to take away our sin and to forgive us. And notice as well, only God can forgive sins. Remember when Jesus later is recorded in Mark 2 as telling the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews were upset about that because they said only God can forgive sin. And that's true. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus is no mere man. He can take away the sin and has taken away the sin of the world. This brings us then to the proof. How did John know Jesus was the Messiah? How did John know that Jesus was the true Lamb of God who has come to take away our sin? And well, John explains as part of his testimony how what happened at Jesus' baptism, that was decisive in giving him understanding of Jesus' identity as our Savior from sin. John tells his audience that he didn't always know that Jesus was the Messiah, but he did always understand the purpose of why he came baptizing with water. John says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so John knew that the Messiah was coming. He knew his role, talking about John's role. He knew his role as the forerunner of the Christ, and he was baptizing with water as part of the spiritual preparation for the Messiah's coming. And this reference by John to how he was very consciously baptizing with water suggests that he knew the Old Testament scriptures that foretold a Messiah who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He knew that his baptism pointed to a greater baptism. In fact, he refers to revelation that he received that explained what was going to happen and provided a way for John to know when he had encountered the Messiah. Notice verse 33 says, I myself did not know him. Again, the idea is not right away. John was not even looking for him initially, but he goes on to say, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And what is John's testimony concerning Jesus? Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And so as John baptized Jesus, what he witnessed proved Jesus was the one come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But have you consider how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in connection with the Holy Spirit? I direct your attention to a number of prophecies from Isaiah, first of all. Um, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then turning over to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We also have the prophecy um, regarding the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then we come to the New Testament and particularly to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then skipping over, still within Acts chapter 2, to, to verse, six, uh, verse 16 and 17, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And then skipping down further to verse 32 um, and and, uh, 33, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. It says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Jesus, clearly the testimony of Scripture, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people. And therefore, John gives us what is the conclusion of the matter in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John writes as a personal eyewitness. He says, I saw. He saw the Holy Spirit descend in a bodily form like a dove upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw that. And he adds, and I have borne witness, wording which indicates that his testimony regarding Jesus was something declared in the past, but that testimony has not changed moving forward. It still has significance in the presence. It's been ongoing. It has been consistent. And what is his testimony? Verse 34b, and this is the Son of God. You maybe have a footnote there in your Bibles indicating that there is a difference in some of the manuscripts. There are some which have John saying Jesus is the chosen one, the elected one, which would mean that he was the one chosen and anointed by God to be the true Lamb, to be the Messiah. Other manuscripts have Son of God, which is what the ESV has gone with. But either way, John is saying, I know that Jesus is the divine word, the one who alone has the glory that belongs to to being the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth, referring back to verse 14. He is the chosen one of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one elected by God to be our savior from sin. And how do I know this? The Holy Spirit came upon him when I baptized him. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit through God himself. This brings us to the significance. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if he is the Son of God and chosen one, and if Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and he is all of these things, then Jesus is the one to whom you and I must look for salvation from sin. I want to read from Ryle's commentary Um, J.C. Ryle has written a number of great commentaries, and I would 
encourage you to make use of those, even for your family devotions. If you haven't gotten to know um, J.C. Ryle, his commentaries are very devotional, and I want to read from uh, some of the comments that he has regarding these very verses. He says, Let us take heed that in all our thoughts of Christ we first think of him as John the Baptist here represents him. Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the root of true Christian theology. We know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain. Let us notice, secondly, in this passage, the peculiar work which John the Baptist describes Christ as doing. He says that he taketh away the sin of the world. Christ is a savior. He did not come on earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. He came to do that which man could never do for himself, to do that which money and learning can never obtain, to do that which is essential to man's real happiness, He came to take away sin. Christ is a complete Savior. He taketh away sin. He did not merely make vague proclamations of pardon, mercy, and forgiveness. He took our sins upon himself and carried them away. He allowed them to be laid upon himself, and he bore them in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. The sins of everyone that believes on Jesus are made as though they had never been sinned that they had never uh, been sinned at all. The Lamb of God has taken them clean away. Christ is an almighty Savior and a Savior for all mankind. He taketh away the sin of the world. He did not die for the Jews only, but for the Gentile as well as the Jew. He did not suffer for a few persons only, but for all mankind. The payment that he made on the cross was more than enough to make satisfaction for the debts of all. The blood that he shed was precious enough to wash away the sins of all. His atonement on the cross was sufficient for all mankind, though efficient only to them that believe. The sin that he took up and bore on the cross was the sin of the whole world. Last but not least, Christ is a perpetual and unwearied Savior. He taketh away sin. He is daily taking it away from everyone that believes on him daily purging, daily cleansing, daily washing the souls of his people, daily granting and applying fresh supplies of mercy. He did not cease to work for his saints when he died for them on the cross. He lives in heaven as a priest to present his sacrifice continually before God. In grace as well as in providence, Christ worketh still. He is ever taking away sin. These are golden truths indeed. Well would it be for the church of Christ if they were used by all who know them. Our very familiarity with texts like these is one of our greatest dangers. Blessed are they who not only keep this text in their memories, but feed upon it 
in their hearts. And let us finally take to heart the significance of Jesus as baptizing with the Holy Spirit over against John who baptized only with water. In baptizing with the Holy Spirit, Jesus brings about the reality of that which water baptism only symbolizes. Westminster Larger Catechism says this about baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting in himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. I'd ask you this evening, do you have a new heart by which you know yourself to be a sinner, needing salvation, a new heart by which you know that Jesus alone is that Savior, knowing that Jesus' death on the cross was Jesus bearing your sins in order to suffer all that they deserve, in order to then take them away. And out of your new heart, have you gone to Jesus in prayer, asking for the forgiveness of your sins, repenting of your sins before him? And if you know Jesus in this way as your Savior from sin, then you have a new heart. And you have that new heart because Jesus has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. And this is why the Bible at times speaks of baptism as necessary to salvation. It's not water baptism that scripture is talking about when it speaks that way. Water baptism is not the requirement. Water baptism does not save. It only points to the real baptism that Jesus gives and that everyone who is saved must and will be granted. Jesus is the one chosen to dwell among us and to be our atoning lamb. And he is the one who is currently at the Father's right hand, exalted there, who is now pouring out his spirit. He's pouring out his spirit to change hearts, to bring sinners into an estate of salvation, and to equip them for service in his church. And I want to conclude this evening by reading the closing paragraph that, again, to read from J.C. Ryle. He says, let us ask ourselves as we leave this passage whether we are baptized with the Holy Spirit and whether we have any real interest in the Lamb of God. Thousands unhappily are wasting their time in controversy about water baptism and neglecting the baptism of the heart. Thousands more are content with a head knowledge of the Lamb of God or have never sought him by faith that their own sins may be actually taken away. Let us take heed that we ourselves have new hearts and believe to the saving of our souls. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist, who as an eyewitness saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him, and that way knew that he was the promised one, the, the elected one, the chosen one, your Messiah, your Son, Come to take away our sins. Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done in taking our sins to himself in order to carry them away from us, in order to forgive us. Father, we pray that we each one 
would recognize more and more how we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need this saving work, and we're thankful for it. Uh, Lord, give us, we pray, uh, a greater and greater understanding of our dependence upon Christ and a greater understanding of what great thing he has done in being the Lamb of God, taking away our sins. Um, Father, we pray if there are any here that do not know Christ as Savior, who do not recognize him to be your chosen one and the Son of God, this, this Lamb who takes away sin, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon their hearts, that they would be baptized with the Spirit and would experience a regeneration of heart and would experience what it is to be cleansed from their sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.